All right. Well, late happy 4th of July to everyone. In this week's episode, we will be talking about machine learning and social sciences. So how can you turn human talking points into binary data points? Is that even possible? And if so, how do we do that? And what is the benefit of that in studying humans? So I will be talking to Dr. Justin Grimmer, co-author of Text as Data. He's a professor in Stanford University's Department of Political Science. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute and a co-director of the Democracy and Polarization Lab. So with that, I am Taylor Bledsoe, and this is Aiming for the Moon podcast, where I interview interesting people from a teenage perspective. If you like what you hear today, please rate the podcast five stars and subscribe, and don't forget to share it around if you have time. If you're interested in behind the scenes and sneak peeks at future episodes, follow us at aiming the number four moon on Instagram and Twitter, and go to aimingforthemoon.com for links to merch, full bios and headshots of our guests, and the behind the scenes newsletter. Also, if you like any of the books that are mentioned throughout this episode, they'll be linked below to help financially support the podcast. So definitely go check those out. And with that, let's get right into the interview. Hopefully you guys enjoy. Well, welcome, Dr. Grimmer, to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So you have just published a book called Text as Data, and it's very interesting. It's where machine learning combines with social science. So before we get into how AI and tech and advances in that have propelled social science, can we set the stage for people who aren't necessarily in social science? Like, what is going on? How do you guys do your research? And how is this going to advance what's going on there? Mm-hmm. So a lot of what's going on in social science right now has to do with what we might think of as a data revolution. There's so much data available now. Part of this comes from the internet, social media platforms, people blogging, or you know, even making purchases on sites like Amazon. This is all trace data that we can use in order to study outcomes that we care about, whether it's economics, sociology, or politics. A big chunk of this data is text data where people write what they say, you know, podcasts like this, we could imagine transcribing it and trying to analyze it. And part of what's interesting there, part of where my research comes in is that it's simply impossible or often extremely difficult for one researcher to themselves read this mountain of text or analyze, you know, uh, the text put into categories. And so that's where these sorts of methods come in to try to make sense of this big collection of data. So how do you go about making sense of this data? You talk about machine learning. So how do you, are you using algorithms that other industries use? Are you creating your own? How does this all work together? Yeah. So sometimes we're creating our own. Sometimes we're using algorithms from other sources. Oftentimes we'll create our own, which are extensions of things other people have created and adding on what we call research design so we can reach some conclusions. So here's one example. One thing that I've spent a lot of time working on is trying to understand the way politicians talk to their constituents. So I've written a couple of books about that. Um, And the way that, that I studied this is I collected big collections of things that they've said, press releases, floor speeches, newsletters, And then the question is, well, how do we analyze this collection? How do we put it into categories that we can have make sense, uh, that we can make sense of and can use to ask and answer questions that are relevant to social scientists? And so the procedure I used is a procedure called an unsupervised model that discovers the categories 
and then assigns documents to those categories. So we tell the algorithm what a good category would look like. And um, we tell it how we want it to optimize or how to come up with the best set of categories possible. And then we sort of set it loose on the documents and it comes back and it'll say, okay, this is the categorization we think makes the most sense. And then we can try to assign labels to those categories and then understand what those categories mean. what They teach us about political representation and politics. How exactly is a machine making sense of, for example, a press release? Like usually my computer can't interpret it. Like, so how do you guys do that? Um, On a super basic level, the first thing we do is we use a bunch of cheats in order to turn text into something that looks more like quantitative data. And so you'll have something that looks like what we'll call natural language, you know, sort of a paragraph that you've seen, you know, every time you've been reading, then you might say, okay, what's the essential information in that paragraph? Well, one component we'd say are like the words that are written and how often those words occur. You might care about order, the order in which the words appear, but sometimes maybe you don't even have to worry about word order. Maybe we can learn a lot just from the number of words and how often they appear. And then we could say, well, can we come up with a guess about two paragraphs that'll be more similar to each other? And one guess we might make is that if they use the same words at like similar rates, then we might say that those two paragraphs are very similar. And if we make that guess, and that guess could be totally wrong. It could be wrong for lots of reasons. But if we make that guess and then we sort of tell the model, okay, this is what we think similar means. And we want you to like put things together that are very similar and try to separate things that seem that seem dissimilar. Uh, the result of that is that the computer can make sense of these things. So it's almost like it's faking its understanding of what's going on. It's more of like you're telling it different ideas and that you're going about it understanding the paragraph in a different way, like recognizing words and the patterns of which that language is used. How would how would you do something? Would you be able to interpret? Let's say you had a speaker and he loved using similes and metaphors. Mm -hmm. And of course, to an algorithm that might be confusing if he's uh, comparing America to a rock or something like that, or the glory of heaven or something. I don't know. I'm just Mm -hmm. throwing out political things. Like how would you teach an algorithm to say, hey, this is a metaphor? Yeah. So uh, it's a good question. And and there's a bunch of work in computational linguistics in order to discover things like metaphor sarcasm is another thing that's that's really tricky uh there's a couple things so one you could try to train the algorithm which means you could go through and say this is a sentence that's metaphorical there's use of a metaphor they're not being literal here and you could try to find the characteristics of that sentence that differ from a sentence that is being literal and then you could sort of use that information feed it into your algorithm and say well these are words, but I think this is a metaphorical, so I want you to use it differently. Uh, there's a bunch of exciting models that take into account word context. This is a, a place where there's lots of big AI models that are being uh, uh, deployed now. And those contextual models can be helpful for doing this sort of exercise for, for finding metaphors. So, for example, if um, for metaphors and similes, maybe looking for a high quantity of like or as in a sentence so like um that might show exactly. something is that an yep. example that that would be that would be a perfect example it could also be um you know if you think about the broader context of a text if you have someone who is discussing government and all this other talking talking about climbing a mountain or you know making a you know shining city on a hill kind of appeals that sort of transition might only happen when there's a metaphor and you might expect that if somebody's really talking about 
mountain climbing or the brightness of cities on hills, that that's what the rest of the document would look like. So that sort of, you know, sudden disjuncture could be another indication of metaphor. Huh. That's a really interesting way to analyze things. How do you guys ever worry about privacy issues? Like if you have these bots and web scraping tools going through and scanning a bunch of blogs, like someone might be like, hey, that's copyright infringement. You're you're reading my data and, and doing a bunch of stuff with it. Like what, yeah. what do you, yeah. How do you respond to these people? So there's a few like dimensions to privacy to think about. One is, are we using proprietary data we don't have permission to use? And in those instances, you know, we go out of our way to make sure we're not violating terms of service on, on web pages. Um, there's another it, it, that I think usually avoids it, or you, you sort of get these nice agreements with companies. Usually they'll want to work with us if we, you know, we're nice and promise not to try to bankrupt them. Um, uh, if we think about privacy from an individual standpoint, it's a super interesting question. I think privacy, individual privacy is just like a wildly interesting area and will be very interesting for the next 30 years. I think there's this really interesting tension that, that folks are starting to tease out. On the one hand, we all appreciate our privacy and want, you know, privacy is the sort of, you know, like American idea, like you're in your home, it's, you know, it's private. On the other hand, people want the sort of returns from having corporate devices listening to them all the time. So we want Amazon Alexa or Siri to be able to offer us useful information at the right point in time. And there's also, I think, real returns for the consumer from having their behavior monitored because you can have products suggested that turn out to be products that you like. But for that to get for those services to work, or for YouTube to recommend the right thing, or for Facebook to say you should see this post, or for TikTok to tell you what video to watch next, it requires an incredible invasion of privacy. And, and the deciding do we want this sort of uh, you know, touch of the button, excellent services, or do we want privacy more? That sort of tension, I think, will become all the more interesting as technology gets better. The other thing that, so if for you guys who who use all the social data and analyze it, the other interesting thing in privacy is, so how, like, let's say YouTube provides a bunch of users data, for example, let's say that there's an agreement and that's signed like that, like, how does the privacy come for people who subscribe to these platforms? Like, how does, is it, how I don't know how it works now. I'm sure um, there are studies that go on like that. Where how does that exactly work? Where you have users of YouTube who nece- who don't necessarily know about research studies that are going on, but technically in a legal way, YouTube still owns their data. Uh huh. So internal, all these companies, there's going to be a bunch of of research work going on, and um, we might think there's not a big privacy risk if only people in the company see the data. The really interesting privacy concern, though, in releasing data, it turns out there's lots of ways in which individual data could be uncovered even from aggregate data. And there's some like simple intuition we might get from that. So, for example, if there's, this is not a tech example, but if there's like a precinct and everyone in the precinct votes the same way for a candidate, then we no longer have a secret ballot. We know who everyone voted for. If you turned out to vote, I know who you voted for. Um and so that's an example where uh, you release aggregate information, but you can infer something about an individual. And there's this whole area of statistics called uh, uh, pri- different that implements a technique called differential privacy that tries to in, uh, uh, impose some privacy on this aggregate data to ensure that a motivated consumer of the data couldn't identify any individual. That's that's really fascinating. 
So how would this machine learning and AI, how will that advance the field? Is it going to make research faster or is it going to allow researchers to focus on different areas of their fields? And like, how exactly is this going to change? I, I think it's both. So uh, on the one hand, for example, I wrote a paper with someone who studies um, the history of political thought. So they're interested in the way ideas evolve over time. And traditionally, this has been a field where someone will read one book and they'll read that book closer than anybody has ever read it before. And they'll write something super smart about this person. And one of the things we're able to do with machine learning is say, okay, let we actually have a collection of about 40 books and we'll make some comparisons. And we're still going to read the books closely and we're still going to talk about those books, but we can organize the books in a way that would have required an army of scholars before. Um, and so in that way, it can speed things up while working hand in hand with traditional methods. It's also the case that it can open up new areas of inquiry. I think, uh, you know, big collections of speech, particularly from politicians, was not a place we saw a lot of new discoveries happening just because it was so cumbersome to study this at scale. And now because it's much easier, lots of people are allocating energy to it. And I think it makes sense because we have some intuitive sense that the speech matters and people are learning a lot from it. So we want to know what they're saying and, and, and how that's changed over time. Currently, I'm working on reading a book for an upcoming interview, and the person took politicians, particularly dictators, and analyzed uh -huh. a bunch of their speeches and found like different similarities in how they used violent words versus calm oh. words or something like that. Uh -huh. and it's a fascinating book. Um, and the thing that I find interesting about that is how exactly – so you have this scholar has taken um, the speeches and analyzed it to figure out how speech was used throughout the dictatorships. Um, but what are other implications for how can we – how is analyzing text, particular polit uh, politicians' text, how is that going to help um, society in general? Like what does this open up when you research this? One of the things that can be hard to know is that sometimes politicians have – incentive to do something that doesn't work out very well in the collective. So one example of this is that politicians can target the other side and individual politicians have lots of incentive to do it. And if you're not looking at this in the aggregate, it's hard to know if one person is doing this more than other people, how often this is happening because it's grown over time. So one example is that we can collect this information and say that we can learn a lot from the collective. We could say, this is how much this is happening in this particular body. These are the people who are doing it. This is what we'd want to you know, change if we want to go back to the 1990s level of this happening. So I think that's one example. Another example is you know, uh, assessing the information that's being provided. Are politicians being truthful? Who's disseminating conspiracy theories or things that are not founded in fact? So we can you know, uh, understand what those are and, and try to counteract them. I think those are two examples, but I, th I think the many other examples. That's very interesting. How um, in you, uh, how in your like study, how have you used machine learning? Like, what are examples in your own personal research? Yeah. Um, so we have a book about how legislators get credit for government spending, and uh, we use a big collection of press releases, and we analyze what are the projects that legislators say they deserve credit for. And one of the super interesting findings that come from that is that senators and House members regularly are claiming credit for money that doesn't seem like a lot. So it's like $30,000. And that's, you know, like $30,000 is a good chunk of change. But like for the federal government, $30,000 is a very small amount of money. And so the question is like, what's going on there? How could that be? And so one of the things that we were able to use this finding to, to show 
was that in experiments, it turns out people are much more responsive to the number of actions legislators take rather than the total amount secured. And so using this machine learning technique in order to uncover this initial, what I think interesting puzzle, why are legislators talking about the small amount of money, led us to an explanation. It's because people just want to see their legislators doing things rather than uh, a small number of big things. Oh, that makes sense. So a lot of people are looking at um, quantity over quality sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That seems to be the the guiding rule for how constituents allocate credit. That's really interesting. So for the next generation of social scientists, like my generation who aren't in college yet, but are kind of thinking about what we want to major in, what we want to do, is this, how would we get into using machine learning? Does it all come a part of the field or what's what's in it for the new age and the new generation of social scientists? Is this a particular section of social science that we will have to go into? Like when, how do we want to combine, if we're interested in combining tech and social science? Yeah, it's a good question. I, th- I think a lot of it is still pretty interdisciplinary. So, you know, if you're really thinking, I want to do something with data and like campaigns, I think is a big application of it. So help campaigns be more efficient. Um, probably want to take some computer science classes, definitely want to do the math classes. So I did uh, math as an undergrad and that that was super helpful. Uh, the more, more math is going to make all of this much easier. And then taking, you know, social science classes at, in order to learn the, the ideas. But at an undergrad level, there won't be a ton combining machine learning and social science just yet. I would say the last thing is being, you know, close to the, the social science a- aspect you care about. So if it's politics, you know, participating in politics, volunteering for, you know, a campaign you believe in, I think is a great way to learn the facts that would then be applied for machine learning. So to kind of wrap up this topic and draw back to aiming for the moon's roots and kind of anchor questions, what books have had an impact on you? Okay, so I have two that will seem perhaps off the wall. So one, my dissertation, it's often I think about it as like sort of a uh, sort of extension of this book using machine learning techniques to extend it. It's a book by this guy, Richard Fenno. It was written, came out in 1978, and it's called uh, Homestyle. Uh, um, and so the idea of Homestyle is that Fenno went around and followed about a dozen members of Congress as they interacted with their constituents in the district to figure out what the ideas were that they were expressing and and how constituents reacted to those ideas, and then to get a sense of how those ideas carried back into Washington. And so I think one of the reasons I love this book is because, you know, masterfully written, beautifully researched, and it sort of, you know, provides this groundwork and it says, look, I could get these dozen or so folks to talk to me. Obviously, we'd want to know more. We want to know how everybody's interacting with their constituents and to get that sense of scale, I think is where some of the techniques that I work on come in. The second book is not a social science book at all, but one that I think speaks a lot to working in the space. It's a book by Kurt Vonnegut. It's called Cat's Cradle. And um, there's <laughs> it's, a, it's just a fantastic book on a sort of entertainment level. But there's this deeper meaning. It's a commentary about what science should and shouldn't do. And it's super interesting to think about what are the boundaries of this work? What are the kinds of models that we want to build? And what are the models that we perhaps want to avoid, even though we perhaps have the potential to build them? Is that uh, avoidance in a sense? Is that as in you want to avoid it because you don't really want to know what's going on? Or do you don't want to give people the ability to harness 
this yeah tool? it's a good question of like what what's the end uh use of the tool and could it possibly be used for some uh purpose that we think isn't going to help you know society get better going to help uh you know make the world a better place and so it's you know anyone any one tool we can think about you know anything from you know helping deliver better ads to helping track people better knowing where people are located based on pings of their internet signal there's great uses for all of those tools and they could also be used for horrible purposes. And it's a good question, you know, to what extent do we want to be thinking about that when we're developing new technology? That's really fascinating. I'm going to have to check out that book. The next question and our last question is, what advice do you have for teenagers? Yeah, this is a good question. I, I have a teenager. Um, and so uh, it's a great time in your life. Uh, there's incredible returns to working hard as a teenager. So finding something you're passionate about and that you can carry forward for the rest of your life, particularly in school, I think is a great way to spend your time. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Grimmer, for coming on. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks so much for listening to that episode. If you liked what you heard today, please rate the podcast and subscribe and share on the episode. If you're interested in behind the scenes and sneak peeks at future interviews, follow us at aiming for moon on Instagram and Twitter. Check out our website, aimingforthemoon.com, for merch, the behind-the-scenes newsletter, and full bios and headshots of our guests. If you liked any of the books mentioned in the What Books Have Had an Impact on You section, check them out through the link below. That helps financially support the podcast. And if you're interested in my other meanderings, go to taylorgbledsoe.com. And with that, set your sights high and aim for the moon. <laughs>